This is episode 252 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, John Julius Real with My Half Orange. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm so pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. John Julius Real is with us. Welcome, John. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Jennifer. Really a pleasure. I I, I especially wanted to be on this podcast because one of the, you're one of the few podcasters out there who actually reads the books of the authors that come to your show. So it's a pl- it's a privilege to be here. It's true. It is a lot of reading. Uh, especially when you enjoy the book, because then you can't really skim through it. Sure. And that was the case with your book. Uh, So John has written a really interesting memoir that I'm really pleased to present today. And let me give a little bio about him first. This is just from the back of the book. He moved from Staten Island to Seville in 2005. His memoir, Kipinta Yoaki, Where Do I Fit In?, was published in 2014 by Editorial Confluences in Spain. He is a regular participant in various tertulias on Andalusian public radio, has dabbled in acting, most notably in Sonia Parejo's feature film, Cis Correros Yankees 6, and has published over 100 articles in Spanish newspapers. He loves teaching. His Facebook page, Spanglish in a Minute, and his Instagram account at John Julius Real have over 200,000 combined followers. He also passionately reviews memoirs on his YouTube channel, Book Rants. My Half Orange, that's the book we're going to talk about today, is his first book in English, which reminds me, I actually learned of your existence and your work through Book Rants on Twitter. And I think as soon as I saw that uh, someone was uh, posting book rants, I had to immediately go check that out. I was like, yeah, this is right up my alley. And indeed, it paid off. I really love those uh, short sequences that you do where you talk about memoirs that you've read and also that your observations about what makes a memoir good are so interesting and astute, I thought. So thank you for book rants because that, you know, it it was really, they're really great. Well, thank you for, for watching. I have another memoir, which I would like to publish one day, called The Great Practice Player. I know you're a big San Diego Padres fan, so I know you're a big baseball fan. And my youth was sort of mm, marked by my early st- youth boy stardom as an athlete that I and the promise that I never live up to. And so <laughs> my second memoir, if it ever gets published, will be about that. But in the process of trying to publish that book, I got an agent, but the agent said that I had to, you know the rigmarole, I had to create a platform. And so I said, well, you know what? I'm going to create a platform about my love of books. And I needed to focus it in some way. And so I decided to read the type of books that I'm writing or that I want to publish. And it's been a pleasure. I mean, you know, like you said, right, Jennifer, I mean, a lot of it is 
you know, sometimes I'd love to read a novel, but I only have so much time and I want to keep up this book rant channel. So I stick to memoir, but I'm never disappointed. I think it's, you know, if you read a mediocre memoir, you still get insights into the author because their mistakes kind of illuminate certain aspects of their character or their journey that they're not confronting, which is a kind of a fascinating thing. Whereas with mediocre fiction, because it's fictionalized, it's harder to kind of see sort of maybe what hangups or insecurities or how people want to project themselves in a certain way. You don't really, you can't see it or I can't see it. So I can even get a lot out of uh, mediocre memoirs. And I like to say if they're mediocre. <laughs> right, because then that's the competition, right? But I think that's yeah. such an interesting observation. I mean, partly what's so appealing about memoir is it's about real people. And yes. real people are fascinating, right? They are. Yeah. I agree totally. I mean, you know, the, the older I get, the more the more I'm drawn to books that they're distilled down to a particular writer's voice. Mm. I'm less impressed by writers who can produce many voices, who have an ability with style. I mean, I, I realize that's important for novels because every character has to have their own particular voice and so forth. But if I want to get to the soul of a particular person, and that's really what floats my boat, well, then mm. I want to go after the best possible memoirs where the writers have distilled down their character or their personality, and it is it comes forth. And that feeds me, reading a good memoir, let's just say reading a spectacular memoir feeds me more than reading a spectacular novel these days, I think. Yeah, so interesting. Okay, so... Knowing everything that you know, it sounds like you were inspired to work in the memoir area for quite a while. So what made you what made you decide to focus on the area that you focused on with my half orange? Well, you know, it was a turning point in my life when mm -hmm. I went to Seville. I didn't I sensed that it might be a turning point, but I really had no idea how much I had to learn. When I went there, I was a single man. I didn't have any interest in getting married and starting a family. My idea was to go to Spain for a year or two and then come back to New York and enjoy the Latino side of New York, which I couldn't because I didn't have the language skills to do that. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was I met a woman, my half orange. My half orange mean is basically the literal translation of the term mi media naranja, which means, I guess, my better half, my soulmate. Okay, which I talk a bit about in the book. And so it's really about how a love affair, I wonder, Jennifer, wh which love affair started first, whether the love affair began with my wife, whether it began with the language, whether it began with Seville itself, it was almost, they all, all kind of dovetailed together. Mm -hmm. And then everything changed, right, Jennifer? Like I realized aspects of myself that I didn't know existed. I arrived when I was 36 and I thought I had overcome a lot of insecurities. I thought I knew my path. And, you know, just the surprise of, of what happened, it seemed like a very, very good place to start a memoir, my arrival in Seville. And I figured it was about when my kids were nine or 10 years old was a good place to kind of end it because I no longer dedicated so much time to raising them because I was, I came into parenthood late and I just figured I was never going to be a grandparent. So I was mm -hmm. going to enjoy it now. And I kind of, with my job as an English teacher, my wife could work in the morning and I could work in the afternoon and we could share the raising of our kids. I really threw myself into raising my two kids. I wanted to create a little America 
because I wanted them to be bilingual because Spanish was guaranteed. They were going to go to school in Spain. So they were going to learn that. They spoke it with their mom. So I had to really make an effort to be around and create this little bubble of America where we spoke English all the time because I knew I could give them this gift of bilingualism, which they don't learn by osmosis. You only can do it by being around them all the time and speaking it. So and once that phase passed, I would say when, when they were about seven or six and they entered school, mm-hmm. the intensity of my experience kind of, it diminished a bit. So it was like my arrival in Spain to when they went to school, at first I said between nine and 10, but I would say between six and seven when they went off, that's when I figured that was the window where I learned so much about myself. You know, I, I think in memoir, it's about self-revelatory writing. I mean, it has to be something where you reveal yourself to mm. yourself. I have to sort of have the challenge of John, what actually happened that during that time? What did you actually see about yourself? What were the moments where you most realized who you were? And then it was a matter of, I think before we started taping, I said it took me 10 years to write because it was so hard for me to kind of narrow down the moments or the anecdotes that I think spoke to my development or growth or allowed me insight into who I am or was or, yeah, I mean, who I am. Because I think at this point, I I am who I am. I mean, I don't know how many more changes I'm going to go through. Hey, hey, may I may. I hope they come. But right now... You know, I'm still the person who is portrayed in my half orange, for sure. Yeah, I think there's nothing like parenthood to reveal parts of yourself to yourself that you never saw before. And as you were talking, I was thinking, and I wonder if falling in love is that way also, maybe in a not so obvious way or your behavior when you're in love. But it was definitely parenthood for me that made me recognize some things about myself Sure. Sometimes not so good. Right? Oh no! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I was saying this to the other the other day that how you know I'm I'm a teacher and I'm a very very patient teacher. I've always been a very patient teacher, but I'm not patient with myself. Uh-huh. If I do something wrong, I get very angry at myself very quickly, and I find that I treat my loved ones, my loved ones, the same way I treat myself. Yeah, and I'm cruel to myself. Sometimes I got to be careful with that word cruel, but I mean, sometimes I am cruel to myself. I don't give myself the time necessary to do things. And I have to really, really fight not to treat my kids the same way that I treat myself. And I'll tell you what, it really did. It was a wake up call, man. Mm -hmm. Some of the impulses that I have with my kids scare me, man. They scare Mm -hmm. me. You know, so I don't know how if it's wise for me to say that, but it's a fact. You know, I mean, parenthood really did wake me up to what my character is, you know? Yeah. And, but I think it, I mean, at least for me, I wouldn't trade that for the world. I mean, it's I'm the best you. thing that ever happened to me was becoming a parent. Oh, Even yeah. though, yeah, it's also embarrassed the heck out of me at times. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just, every day we make mistakes. Yeah. Just, and, and they're so obvious to no, us. Oh, so dumb. <laughs> yeah. And you just see it like, and you see those mistakes sort of, play out in in the faces of your loved ones and in the character of your loved ones and you're like oh my god what have i done before (laughs) i didn't even notice when i was making mistakes you know so you're clearly an expert in the memoir genre so i want to ask you this question and if it's uncomfortable of course you can skip it how do you feel your memoir measures up to the many, many memoirs that you've read otherwise? Well it's a great question and it's something that over time, 
I've realized that I just can't answer because I don't know. I mean, this is the kind of thing about being a writer. You just never know mm. what you've produced. I mean, I just am not a good judge of my own work. I don't really know what I've produced. I can't tell. In fact, whenever I hear a writer saying this is my best book yet, I'm like, you don't know it's the, your best book yet. You have no idea. You know, I, this is the book I think re that reveals the most about me. We don't know that. We really don't. I mean, I feel like I'm a very, very good reader of other people's stuff. Mm. I don't know. All I can do is hope that my memoir measures up to the, my favorite memoirs and to take the time necessary and allow time to be my friend and, you know, say, okay, well, John, the best memoirs you've read have taken normally a long time to write. Mm. Normally, they're, they, they're the sentences that you like best and that you admired most are crafted sentences, you know? Yeah. And so I just try to emulate what I admire in other people's writing, but I just don't know how well I've done it. I have no idea. And I think that's the most honest response. I wish I knew. Mm -hmm. I wish I knew, you know? I think that is a really honest answer. I have to say, as a reader for myself, I really enjoyed it. So to the extent that, yeah, that you're uh, getting at least my feedback yeah, I really enjoyed it. And as we said before, I read it all very carefully because I enjoyed it so much, right? There weren't parts that I could skip. That It was almost every chapter was, oh, I, I you know, I want to hear about this. I do particularly like the beginning where you talk about the house. Ah, Right away, there's a really captivating image of your wife doing yoga underneath mm. what apparently is an enormous a statue of Christ on the cross. Yes. And so that whole opening then where you kind of walk from room to room and you talk about what's meaningful about the house and your kids and so forth really brings us into that moment right away, which I think is always a hard, it's hard to start maybe a memoir. It is. I agree. I was curious, did you struggle with that opening or did you know did you always know that's where you wanted to start? Well, in addition to sort of working on this using my own lights, let's say, you know, I realize I need editors and I need an outside perspective. So the book originally started with me just arriving in Seville alone in my room with my girlfriend having left me, my much younger girlfriend having left me. And I imply that, you know, I had dated ex-students. And so there's this kind of sense of, it begins with this lost 35-year-old white man. And, and the woman who read it said, John, I, I love where this book goes, but I don't know how many readers are going to get there because they're not going to, they need to know where you got mm -hmm. before they can, they can sort of accept the kind of person that you are at the beginning of the story. And so why don't you give me something where, you know, you're well along in your growth right at the beginning. So it's a kind of promise to the reader that these rocky beginnings where you have a character that's maybe not so likable, mm. he's going to get somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so it was great advice. And when she gave me that advice, it just came to me that what is it that I have achieved here, I Maybe I didn't achieve it. Maybe it's Providence, good luck. I don't know. But I have domestic peace. And what is my domestic peace? Well, I feel comfortable at home. Mm -hmm. I want to come home after work. Mm -hmm. And what is my home? Well, my home is, I just said, I'm going to go 
from the room to room, from my bedroom, where my wife is now, and I'm going to just pass the reader through all the important places. So it begins with, you know, my wife doing yoga beneath this cross, this huge gaudy cross, which was the same cross that my in-laws put up when they bought the apartment 45 years ago. And then my wife is doing yoga underneath it. So we're both lapsed Catholics and we're keeping this cross because it represents something to us. Although we're not churchgoers, nonetheless, we can't help but be, I mean, I'm a great admirer of Jesus Christ, although I'm not someone who, you know, goes to mass and receives the sacrament every Sunday. And as a part of me, even that says, John, you should, but I'm not. But so it's still a real important part of my life. And then, you know, there was the books that I used to teach my kids to read in English. Then there's that there's the chair where my father-in-law sat when he was terminally ill and we took care of him. And then there's this wonderful balcony that looks out on this working class neighborhood building where I can see a bus stop and I can and I can see like my the history of my wife. It's an amazing thing, Jennifer. Like I live away from Staten Island, so I never ever see anything that reminds me of my life before I came to Seville when I was 35. I don't see places that have a history. I don't see old friends that I met. In, you know, I don't have anything reminding me of, like, for example, if I go to a pizzeria on Staten Island, I can remember birthday parties. I can remember bringing my college friends there. I can remember the waiters and waitresses there. There's this whole history. It's an accordion of history. I have none of that here. And my wife, Every single day, she's living in the house she grew up in. We go to the, the town that she lives in. So it's like this very, it's almost not only culturally different in that it's Spain and the United States, but I have left the culture of my childhood behind. It's like, right. I, I don't have anything to remind, and I'm not complaining. Yeah, it's something no, I, no. I, I, I like, I prefer. Right. I, I like that umbilical cord being cut, but she's wrapped in that umbilical cord. Sometimes it chokes her. Yeah, You know, and so I also talk about that. Like I look out the window and I see the bar where once she stood up for a much older sister after her sister was molested in the elevator by this guy. So it's like I'm trying to sort of show who my wife is right off the bat and how she is the glue, the warmth, the wisdom, the strength that sort of made me happy and then make my kids happy. And I create this kind of piece or I attempt to. I hope I do. And then boom. I go seven years before when I'm this lost sort of man looking to try to make sense of this love was that was never going to work out anyway, you know, and then the story shoots forward. Yeah, I think what that first chapter does, I mean, it does all the things that you're describing, but it also conveys to us a certain attitude that I really appreciated. And that is this. Uh, respect for the past, respect for other mm. cultures, and also that you leave things there that were there before because uh. that's their place. And, you know, I think a lot of people would move into that house, maybe even your wife or someone in her situation and say, we need to change all this. Yeah. And instead, the fact that you guys left up that something rather remarkable and maybe, you know, it doesn't quite fit in some ways, but it's part of your past, shows the kind of respect that the reader is going to experience for your whole experience in Spain with the culture, with the language, with your wife, you know, and that's that's really a lovely thing for a reader to see right off the bat. Okay, I, I get that we're going to not be judgmental about this. This isn't going to be an unpleasant experience. This is going to be an exploration. And, that, you know, to me, that 
that's exciting, right? That sort of just here's how it's going to be told. I think it's great. Well, see, now that's exactly the type of thing I'm, I was talking about earlier. I didn't see that. What you're telling me was not conscious. You know, I mean, I didn't set out to do that. And here you are telling me I did that. Mm-hmm. And I can see how I did that. Mm-hmm. But it was not something that I set out to do. And I'm just blind in many, mm-hmm. many ways. I mean, thank God I did that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that is the spirit of the book. There is a, I mean, there is a kind of curiosity that I've been blessed with. And I, I am curious about things. I really am out to know. And I expect probably that that works its way through the manuscript. But I love how you put it in the sense that, hey, man, that's awesome. If I have shown that I'm out to explore and that instead of judging in my comparisons between cultures, I'm discovering that that would be awesome if that's what I've done, you know? That's what I got, at least. My listeners will, when they pick up your book, which I hope they do, they uh, may see something a little bit different, but that's what I experienced. You do talk about your rather famous father also in the opening, and then you include this fantastic photograph of him. It's really a remarkable photo of him sitting and having coffee and reading a newspaper and talking to someone. But yeah, there's just something very much in the moment about that photo. Can you talk a little bit about him and the photograph? Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, that guy that my father's with, James Buckley, was William Buckley's brother. He just died. He died, I don't know, I think a few months ago. I mean, he was in his hundreds. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, my father at that time was covering his senatorial campaign. My father was a journalist and ultimately he became a columnist for the New York Daily News when it was in its heyday, really, when people received and got the news from the tabloids, most people, I mean, there was also the New York Times, but the papers that sold the most were the New York Daily News. In fact, I discovered you, Jennifer, because you interviewed on this Uh podcast another writer who wrote for the Daily News. He had a great Italian name. Yeah, Jacarino. Yeah, think. Mike Jacarino. Yeah, it's a great name. Who wrote about the war. Well, and he's a great, he wrote a great book. And he, it was your podcast that turned me on to that book. And so, you know, he was at the tail end of when there was still a war, the circulation wars between the news and the post. And so my father was a very, very important man in that circle. But the photo at the beginning of the book, which is also one of the things I mentioned, because that's the one thing that my son wanted to keep in what used to be my writing study, was this photo of his granddad who died in 2010. And so he's in this photo, right? And the thing that I love about the photo, I think I mentioned in the book, I'm not sure, but he's got the Daily News open. And you can see the headline that it's Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. So Joe, Muhammad Ali is coming back after being sort of barred from boxing because of Vietnam. So it, you have your time. God, right? how on earth did I miss that? I didn't even notice that. Right. And then. Oh, wow. You know, I know that, that his campaign of James Buckley, I think it was 69, 70. I can't remember exactly when. And then the great detail is that, you know, he's got his cigarette, his cup of coffee at his feet. He's wearing a suit. They're both wearing a suit. And if you look at the photo really closely, there are Band-Aids on each of my dad's fingers. And that's because my mom wanted my dad to stop biting his fingernails. Okay. So it's like in the photo, I see my mom too. 
I see my mom in those band-aids. Like, you know, I mean, I've been blessed. I was raised, you know, now that there's all this talk about privilege. And I am privileged because I was raised in a family where my mother and father loved each other intensely. That's my great privilege. Yeah. You know, that's what made my childhood so wonderful. Not so much my race. Not so much the time I lived in, not so much the money we had, although those all added to my privilege, but the greatest privilege, without a doubt, was that I was raised in a happy household. Mm -hmm. It gave me all I needed to sort of, let's just say, choose this path of writing, which there's a lot of doubt ahead. There's a lot of, you know, I'm 56 years old. I got my first book published in English when I'm 55. So I'm very, very thankful for, you know, the security I was given by my parents. And so that photo is very, very powerful to me because it reminds me not only of my dad and what he achieved professionally, but also what he achieved and my mother achieved domestically and what that then gave me. And then I think we carried on, my wife and I, with the gift. I mean, you never know. But I feel like I have a very happy I lucked into because it's luck because I started with her and it was unwise for her to be with me and for me to be with her because we didn't know each other and we mm-hmm. had kids boom, boom, really quick, you know, things worked out for us. So there's a lot of luck involved too, but who knows, maybe there's a part of me, thanks to my having been raised in domestic bliss that allowed me, maybe who knows to sort of sense that there was something here mm-hmm. that was similar to what my parents had. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Jennifer, who knows? Yeah, who knows? Now, you chose not to include a photograph of yourself, however, in the book. And I can vouch for my listeners here. You're a very nice looking man. There's no reason uh, for your looks not to be included in the book, but you chose not to. So why why was that? Well, you know, the book has illustrations. Yes. I think one of the things that I like about it is that I want those illustrations to carry weight. Mm-hmm. And I want, who knows? I mean, it'd be kind of cool if someone reads the book. They have a picture of me through the illustrations by Daniel Rosell, who is a very, very talented Spanish illustrator. And then, you know, they encounter me in real life. I think the illustrations did a very good job. He got to know me through my writing. And mm-hmm. so he did most of those drawings without having seen me. So I figured that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm that his image of me was formed by my words. And I said, well, let's give that also to the readers. And if they want to look, I mean, it's so easy to find me on online. I mean, there's thousands of videos that I've done, not only on book rants, but on my page where I teach English. I mean, I've got over a half a million followers that follow me for my lessons on English and Spanish. So there's a ton of stuff out there to see me if they, if they want to see me. Right. And there's the film that I did, which is, you know, you can see free online. So anyway, that's why I did it. I think that's a really good explanation. And I neglected to ask about the illustrations in my prepared questions, but I think they're great. They're really funny. They're lighthearted. Yeah, they're they're really nice. Yeah, they work really well, I think, in the book. And so I did want to talk a little bit about the physical characteristics of the book. It's a really nice book to hold. I really like the color Especially orange, you know, can be kind of garish and unpleasant, but this orange is just lovely. The cover is great. And it's all orange for my listeners who, of course, can't see it. But the other thing that's so interesting about it is the feel of the cover. It feels almost like a little bit like leather. It's really an interesting feeling. I'm not sure I've ever 
held a book quite like this before. So did you have much to do with those choices? Well, I did in the sense that I chose the image for the cover. Okay. Because I follow, I'm here in Seville, and you know, I didn't really want it to be a cliched image of Seville. I wanted it to be something that was, I know where this photo is taken from. It's taken from a specific spot in a town outside of Seville, and it's from a distance, and I figured it was kind of cool. And it wasn't so orange. The book was published by Tortoise Books, which is a publishing house, an independent publishing house in Chicago, which does really, really wonderful work. He's kind of a one-man band, Jerry Brennan. He's a writer himself, and I think he started the publishing house to publish himself because he found it very, very hard to get published. And he opened it up to other people, and it's gaining momentum. And he is a very, very skilled creator of covers. He designs most of the covers. So... I said, well, I wanted to choose the font and I wanted to choose the photo, but then he gave it the softness that you're talking about. And, you know, he also worked very, very hard on, on the inside of the book, the way the illustrations are composed in the book, how they take up the full page. It's not a very long book. It's a quite a short book, actually. Well, quite a short book. I would say, what is it? Maybe 70,000 words. I mean, okay. most books are 90, but a lot of the space is filled up with these illustrations, which I think make it a more entertaining, lively read. And so I'm really happy with what Tortoise Books did, not only that, but also with with their editing. I mean, I was very, very lucky with the editor, a woman named Lauren, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, G-O-I-E. She works with Tortoise Books. It wasn't pleasant working with her, but it was very, very helpful. Yeah, She really, really, she was very, very sharp at pointing out where my prose faltered. I mean, it's hard to maintain the kind of, I want a clean, no excess type of sentence. Mm -hmm. And sometimes my vision breaks down and I don't see what I'm writing. And it was very, very helpful for her to say, fix this up. Mm -hmm. She didn't get in and say, she didn't put in words for me. Yeah, She said, no, this isn't sharp. It helped me really in the last draft of the book, give the book the tone. I mean, if the book has a tone, I'm not sure what the tone is. I'm not sure exactly what I've produced, but what I wanted to do was to distill the language down so there was no excess. And that way, whatever tone it had, the tone would be louder and clearer. Clear. Yeah. If there's no excess. So I'm very, very grateful to Lauren for the line by line stuff. And I think Jerry, who runs the press, was also helpful in taking out certain chapters that I think would have dragged the story on a bit too much. So I'm, I lucked out in many, many ways. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's great to hear that you had a good experience uh, with them. So many things changed for you once you decided to pick your half orange and then the yes. little wedges started getting yes. such a great name for the for the kids. <laughs> yeah, I love that. A lot of cleverness like that in the book, Thanks. a lot of wordplay. And yeah, super fun for someone like me. But of course, your American upbringing would continue to influence you. Sure. And there's the section where you talk about uh, your parents and how they might approach uh, living with someone before being married or becoming pregnant before being married. So can you talk about that little section where you describe the quote unquote brought the coal ember closer to my sardine? Yeah, the translation is to bring the coal ember closer to your sardine. 
I play a lot in the manuscript with, with some of my most favorite, I guess you would say, sayings in Spanish. They're very, very creative. I mean, there's some great ones in, in English too. But for example, ones that have to do with bullfighting, this doesn't have to do with bullfighting, but it does have to do with sardines, which is a very, very uh-huh. important food in Spain. And so the idea of that saying is that if you bring the coal ember closer to your sardine, you're working the system to your advantage. That's basically the idea of that of that saying. And so what happened, I mean, my father was a very, very conservative Catholic. That was his voice in the New York Daily News. He was very, very much the voice of the outer boroughs conservative Catholic. And I was born and raised on Staten Island in the outer boroughs. I grew up with Italians and a lot of Irish people in my Catholic school. So And, you know, that's very, very traditionally Catholic. And a lot of the beliefs of the church continued in my childhood to be something that formed the way I or what I would be ashamed to tell my parents. Right. So I was 35 years old. I never lived with a woman. And I went abroad. And I think because I was abroad, I felt like the umbilical cord, as I said before, was cut enough that I could just live with this woman, take the step. You know, and this is not something I told my parents at first, but once Virginia got pregnant, well, then I told my parents and I kind of worked the system to my advantage in (laughs) the sense that they wouldn't have been happy with the fact that I was living with a woman. But once the woman was pregnant, well, then I had to live with her. So there was no, (laughs) there was no like, well, just happy. I'm going to put, I put your mother on the phone. So they didn't really, there was no moral dilemma. Right. It was just like, okay, it was an understandable mistake. And, and then it worked like, out. And it worked out, you know, <laughs> so it didn't work out in the order they would have wanted. You know, sure. one of the things with the book is I I wanted the stories at the beginning of the book to be kind of lighthearted, the language mm-hmm. stuff. And then it builds into these great lessons of, you know, losing my dad yeah. in 2010 and this, around the same time of losing my my father-in-law and taking care of my father-in-law. And that was another reason why, to go back to your earlier question of why I chose that particular time, because I kind of lived under the shadow of my father's success. And I felt as though I could never kind of be the writer that he was considered to be. And I went abroad and it turned out that I got a column in the local paper Mm-hmm. which is the same thing he did. And then, you know, he got to see the first 10 of them before he passed away. And it's almost like the torch was passed. Yeah. And in many, many ways, the story kind of finishes with a section called Fathers, where I was a father. There's a story of my own father. There was a story of my father-in-law. And then there's a final story of like going home and seeing my mother and seeing my father's grave. And that mm-hmm. kind of puts the, well, the final touch on what I think is one of the most important stories of my life, which is my story in Spain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as a language lover... I was completely delighted by all the language talk that in the book that, you know, the expressions, the verbal accidents that happen to you, right? Yeah. When you think you're saying one thing and you're saying another. I mean, yeah. I just loved all of that. So, well, in fact, I'll tell you a little bit of a story because you talked about this word vale. Yeah. And it's really weird. You know, I'd taken quite a few uh, Spanish classes. I'd never heard that word before. And I went to spend a summer in Spain with my family and we walked into the language school, which was. When did you go? uh, Actually, that was 2010 that we went the summer of 2010. We were there for three months. Where? 
in San Sebastian, Donostia. Ah, beautiful place. Beautiful yeah, place. Yeah, it was really yeah. beautiful. But the first day we walked in in the morning and, you know, because we're a family and we're coming for three months, we had all this luggage. And when I walked in, you know, we're all jet lagged. We're a mess. We're dirty. And I'm confused. And the sure. the director of the school came out and he kept saying to me, Bale, Bale, Bale. And, and I was like, is this a word for like valise, you know, like luggage? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And it yeah. was like, what is this Bali word that he's using every 15 minutes? So then I really hooted when I read in your book sure. the same thing, yeah, that you're hearing this word. Bali. So tell the story about that. Well, yeah, it's like the word, the verb is valer, which is to value, right? Like if you want to say cuánto vale, Cuánto valen las peras? How much do the pears cost, or what is their value? Mm -hmm. Okay, but that's one meaning. Another meaning is like that doesn't work. Like that just doesn't. That doesn't has no value. It's useless. In other words, like if I'm doing something badly, my wife can say, "John, eso no vale." That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then it also means okay. Yeah, <laughs> it really. That's what it means. Is okay. <laughs> exactly. So. The thing is, it's like I'm trying, I think the scene is I'm trying to buy a sandwich and I'm trying to buy a sandwich with American dollars. And the woman is saying like the bill had no vale. It doesn't work here. Okay. And she's saying, okay. She's like, el, el billete no vale, vale. And I'm like, no vale, vale. Are, you, are, are you, I mean, it's just, I was so, oh, oh no, it's like. It vale cinco euros. It's worth, it's cost five. Pero este billete, so like, it's, it's like she used the word three <laughs> yeah, times. Three meanings in, in two one sentence. sentence. Yeah. And I was like, what? Is she messing with me? I mean, how is it possible? Like, is she just having fun at my expense? And so, yeah, there's a lot of words like that in that just, I mean, they, they're, they're very, very humorous as far as there's so much confusion at first. I mean, you know. It, you don't really, it's one of the biggest frauds in America to sell kind of how easy it is to learn a language. It is so hard to learn another language. It requires time. Look, there are the geniuses who can do it in five months, in six months, but they are very, very few. Yeah. And a lot of them are bullshit artists. They say they speak six languages and maybe they can say, my name is John in six languages. Mm -hmm. When you say I can speak Spanish, what does that mean? There's a lot of way. I mean, that can mean you can have a conversation with anyone at any time and understand everything, or it can mean you can have a conversation with Duolingo. It's vague to say, so you can speak Spanish with Rosetta Stone in three months. No, you can't, yeah. you know? So it was like really, really, and I didn't know this. I was the typical American ignorant, like thinking out in six months, three months, I'll, I'll have it mastered. Oh. Get out of here. Three years. Three years yeah. it took me. And I'm not stupid and I'm not lazy. Mm -hmm. So you know? Yeah, it's tough. Well, yeah. I was curious if you were worried about talking so much about language in the book, if you thought that you would lose uh, some readers. And so, yeah, I was curious about whether you were concerned about that. You know, there were a couple things I wanted to do. I mean, it's the full title is My Half Orange, A Story of Love and Language in Seville. So I knew that language had to play a role in it. I would say that I also knew where I wanted to go with the book. I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to go into family. I wanted it to be about sort of family love and the life I'd sort of found in Seville. So I knew that language would, as the book went on, take on less and less importance. 
And so, but I also wanted to carry it through to the end. So maybe what you're sensing, I mean, the thing is, it's every reader. Maybe you wish that I had put more of that in. I had to really make an, a concerted effort to put language all the way through. I see. Because I didn't want to lose that thread, which was very, very important. So it was hard for me to find the balance. So because I took a lot out in the end because I just mm -hmm. felt like I was putting it in to put it in. And uh -huh. I wanted everything. Like there's one line I think. It was hard for me to find, for example, certain examples of the Spanish language mm -hmm. that would fit with the story I was telling in each chapter. I didn't want to force it. I mm -hmm. wanted each chapter in a way to stand on its own. And then also each chapter to benefit from the context of the other chapters, of course. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. no, I don't think so. I don't think that I thought I would bore the reader with that. I'm mm -hmm. really interested in that. I'm, yeah. I love it. I yeah. mean, I... <laughs> Who cares I if they're bored, right? We're exactly. into it. <laughs> exactly. You yeah. know, I I mean, there's a chapter that I knew might be kind of polemical. The chapter when I talk about gender, mm -hmm. where I talk about why are certain words masculine and why are certain words feminine? Mm -hmm. And just the, the way that plays out in my head in a native speaking English mm -hmm. speaker where words are gender neutral, unless mm -hmm. you're saying waiter and waitress. Mm -hmm. But, you know, why is soul masculine? I mean, you could say, well, it's because of the ending. Well, then why is the ending A and not O? Mm -hmm. Like, why, if you have puerta, door, well, it's la puerta, pero puerto is port and it's O. Well, why is a port masculine and a door feminine? Well, you can't say it's because of the endings, because the endings were chosen. Like, I mean, right. what comes first? I mean, like, right. did you decide to put the O on the end because you, because the Spanish culture considered a port to be more masculine than a door, which they seem to be more in why, what is their criteria? To me, that's a fascinating uh -huh. idea. I mean, I, I can't get it out of my head. Uh -huh. I mean, to me, it's a fascinating thing, putting gender on. And, you know, if you go to the other romance languages, mm -hmm. there's not always parallels. No, there's not always. And that's tricky when you pass from language to language. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. To remember, oh, wait, darn. It's, yeah, it's a masculine this language, but it's feminine and the other. Oh, <laughs> to speak correctly, you always have to think about masculine, feminine. Now, mm -hmm. people, it's not, to me, masculine, feminine has more than the connotation of semantically it's a word that has i mean i'm a writer and so a word is going to have many connotations i can't just compartmentalize it and say well it's only semantics no i think it goes beyond that and i think there's a lot of things that go into play when a word is decided or evolves into being masculine or evolves into being feminine it's a fascinating idea like are there prejudices behind that mm -hmm. what's behind that i don't know but I knew that if I wrote that chapter, because I'm playing with those words, word, words that I that are masculine, that I think should be feminine, you know, <laughs> I just knew that there would be certain people would say, well, look how sexist you are. I was like, ah, screw it. Let them think that. I am, I guess, a little bit sexist. I don't know. Let them decide. You know, mm -hmm. so I knew I was sort of maybe walking on thin ground for, for some people. But hey, I mean, that's who I am. I'm not going to hide that, mm -hmm. I don't think, you mm -hmm. know, especially if some people might laugh. Yeah. And of course, I do think, I mean, you know this better than I do, but I do think it is what makes memoirs, some memoirs better than others. You know, we do have a lot of kind of factory producing memoirs where everything's been scrubbed of that kind of thing. And yes. there's a ghostwriter and yeah, I don't, I mean, they're just, to me, they're just not very interesting. And so 
that's the point of a memoir, right? If we're just going to yeah. rub some, right, or produce and sell some scrubbed, you know, laundered yeah. image of someone, which we do get a lot of from sports athletes and those kinds of people, politicians in particular, probably. I think it's brave to say I'm going to write this book and this book is really written for me and maybe a few other readers out there who will appreciate it. And then it turns out that a lot of people like that kind of writing, right? They're not as judgmental as as sometimes I think editors and publishers think. Anyway, that that's my that's my thinking. Well, I agree with you. I think that, you know, the, I I love to see the cracks in writers. I love mm-hmm. to see I'm always annoyed by not only I mean you're right that a lot of these scrubbed memoirs by celebrities are, you know, just really boring to read. Yeah, but they're also boring. They're, like, yeah. they're so boring. They're <laughs> so boring, you know? But there are there is another type of, of memoir where you get the sense that the writer wants to project a certain persona. Sure. And mm-hmm. so whether that persona is because they want to be tough or they want to have the right opinion about the right subjects or they want to come across as being, you know, a good person or, mm-hmm. you know, the have the right type of politics. I mean, all of that stuff, it, it just that's what makes a, me- a memoir mediocre, in my opinion, mm-hmm. b- where the writer is not comfortable enough with him or herself to tell the truth. I mean, if I am a little bit of my time, then I am a little bit of my time. And, you know, I mocked myself for it in the book. I don't Uh go around thinking like, you know, I mean, there are many, many sort of conversations between my wife and me, and she keeps me on my toes. And some of the things that I say are blatantly sexist. And my wife puts me in my place for saying those things that are blatantly sexist. And that is part of our chemistry. And I'm not going to hide the fact that I sometimes these things come into my head and I feel comfortable enough around my wife to say them. And she feels comfortable enough to tell me, John, you're full of shit. Mm -hmm. So that's just a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And I want to put that in the book, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. One of the things you talk about in the book is writing, not a lot, but some, and uh, you have some exchanges with your dad about what makes good writing. And one of the points that you make, or at least this is how I interpreted it, which, which I think about a lot, is that good writing is really actually good thinking. You know, that kind of honesty, clarity, getting straight about what it is you're really trying to say. So can you talk more about that? Well, sure. I mean, I I think the scene you're referring to is when I'm talking about the luck I had growing up with a father who could teach me how to write in many ways. I mean, after he retired, my father was not an ambitious man professionally. He was much more of a family man. He liked to go to our little league games and you know, went to all my basketball games in high school, even though I sat the bench. So he was very, very supportive of my of my career and also my writing career. And at the beginning of my writing career, I didn't really know what I was doing. I sometimes I still don't know what I'm doing, but I certainly didn't know what I was doing at the beginning. And he was very, very open to reading my stuff, which I'm sure wasn't pleasant sometimes. But anyway, at one point, I thought I'd nailed it. I thought I had written this book, a memoir about all my I guess I think I'm almost embarrassed to say it now, but my all my dating experiences and so forth. And I gave it to him. I said, Dad, I just want you to tell me if, you know, the prose is sharp. Right. And he said <laughs> to me, he, he came back, you know, four or five days later with his head down. Like, and I just said, oh, no. And he just said to me, John, there's <laughs> he said, there's nothing wrong with the prose. It's it's just, it's your thinking. And I was like, what's wrong with my thinking? He said, it's puerile. It's, ch- it's childish. 
And, you know, you know, it's just like, I was just <laughs> stunned at the idea of like, he said to me, John, you, you know, you might get this published, but you know, this is not the you you want to get out there. I mean, this is not, this is a you you want to get over. <laughs> and, and then you can maybe write the, the book that you think is good and that is funny and is well written. I think I spent many, many, many years. I, I really look back on myself, Jennifer, and I think that I was really, it took me a long time to mature. Mm-hmm. a long time to grow up and to sort of come into my own about what I am. And, you know, and thanks in many ways to the example my parents gave to me. I mean, I think that, you know, I spent a lot of years writing wonderful, maybe even scintillating prose right. about very stupid subjects, well-written, immature voice. Mm. And so, you know, it. I think writing is thinking. And in many, many ways, I'm grateful that it took me this long to get a book published in English, because I probably would have embarrassed myself if I had gotten the books published when I wanted to get them published. So I'm very, very grateful to have had a, you know, had to wait so long before I was able to get my voice out in the world I mean, there are people who might think it's foolish. There are people that might think it's whatever, but it's, I think I'm at least a decent human being now. Mm -hmm. And so I can, you know, expose my, my faults because they're not so grave. I hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. It's when I say that to myself or say that to people that I'm working with on their writing, good writing is good thinking. What I really mean is you know, clarity and, mm. um, ah, I see. you know, sort of consistent. But now that you're talking, I realize what it also means is that the thinking is interesting, right? That you have sure. something interesting to say. And that's not necessarily captured in, in the way I was uh, wording it before. But that is this idea, writing scintillating prose about something boring. That really yes. strikes a chord because we do see so much of that, especially sure. when people are sort of assigned a topic or feel they need to write about a certain topic. Yes. And they might write very well, but if what they're writing about isn't worth it, you know, the, no bale. <laughs> exactly. No, I really think that talent is overrated. Mm. I really do. I, I'm less and less impressed by wordsmith abilities mm. because really the, the better you write, the more you can hide behind it. Aha, uh-huh, right. I just feel as though you don't, you need to have a certain amount of talent to write, but really you need to write a memoir. I'm saying you need to know yourself and that takes time. And it also takes a certain amount of what does it take to know yourself? I guess just the ability to be with yourself in silence and to sort of know who you are and to recognize what's, as you say, interesting about your life or worthy, you know, worthy of, of 500 words or worthy of 200. That's, that's not everything is worthy. Yeah. Especially in a book. And I think you get a lot of that now. Like a lot of people, like, uh, for example, you get a lot of memoirs that are collections of other pieces that were maybe written in the New Yorker. Mm. I recently read a book like this. I won't name it, but I would say half of them were book worthy. Just because it was published in the New Yorker does not mean it's book worthy. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. It has to be better than that. It mm. has to all work together. And so, you know, I read two books and one of, I would have told this writer, Take out half of what you got here because the, it's just not to the level of the other half. It might have been good in The New Yorker, but it's not sure. book worthy. Mm. You know, I, I read with more attention when there's a book in front of me. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was a higher standard the prose has to meet. I'm expecting more when I pick up a book 
than I am expecting when I'm picking up an issue of the New Yorker. I just mm-hmm. am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, magazine writing versus, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up here with one last okay. question for you, because so much of the book is about culture and you're exploring uh, the culture, learning about it, and then, you know, just surprises and funny things. It's so great. Do you feel as though you're still learning about the culture there? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, you'll learn a phrase about the culture. Like the other day, I, I'm on the radio in the mornings. I do this on Tuesdays. I'm on this station where people call in and they ask me to try to translate certain sayings in Spanish. And it's very funny because I can't really do it with a lot of them, you know, <laughs> but it's impossible, you know, because they, because, you know, like, for example, the word gastar, which is to spend, right? But it's like, you also gastar that means to like wear away so there'll be a lot of jokes in spanish like tu gastas menos they'll you you spend less than for example shoes worn by whatever so they're playing with the idea of like spending and wearing away so i just can't translate them because that 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 play on words can't be done in english you know but Mm -hmm. there was one the other day where someone called in and they said to me you know how do you say Basically, it was the Spanish equivalent of what goes around comes around. Okay. And it, it had a mule driver in it. It was like. <laughs> of course there driver, was. <laughs> right? It's like a mule driver. We will meet again on the path. Oh, yeah. Something about a mule driver's meeting again on the path. And so suddenly, you know, Spain just comes alive in those types of phrases. And so like I am very, very kind of privileged. And I mean, you and I share this love of language and how much language speaks to a culture. So I'm constantly being taught new words and I'm being, or like, for example, the word, I didn't know this, but, or just for example, a word like, ojalá. There's a lot of Arabic words in Spanish, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, ojalá. And then like, I'm thinking, well, God willing, like, oh, okay, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I'm recognizing things about my own language right. that I just never thought of that being God willing. Uh-huh. You know, it's very common to say, like, si Dios quiere. Nos vemos mañana, si Dios quiere. We'll see each other tomorrow, God willing. Yeah. This used to be said a lot, but now you never hear it. But suddenly, oh, you know, like I'm back in a different age. I, I it's just it's, a, yeah. It's just a wonderful thing that language gives you this kind of context that to me is just so fascinating. And I'm in it every day because I'm I'm teaching in English, yeah. but I'm on the radio in Spanish and I'm sometimes caught between two worlds. And it's just a it's wonderful to be in limbo. You know, in the you know, there's a great phrase like you mentioned when you when you were doing my biography. Like I published a memoir in Spain in 2014 called Cape Pinto Yoaki, which basically means where do I fit in? But the literal meaning is what do I paint here? Oh, that's the idea. It's oh, like the I didn't idea. pick up on that. Oh, how right? cool! Like Cape Pinto Yoaki, like how what paint do what do I paint? Right. In this? Yeah. Zero. I paint nothing in this scene. So like, oh, you know, pinto nada. I paint nothing in the mm. scene. So just the idea of like, you see like the idea of decorating a life, decorating a scene, a person decorating a life, decorating right. a scene, all that stuff. I never really considered that as a person decorating my life, sure. as a person painting something in the scene before my eyes. It's a gift every day that you realize these things to me right. anyway, you know? 
Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, what a great image. And of course, yeah, that's partly why we love learning other languages is because they yes. give us these new perspectives and new images, right? The mule, mule driver. That's so cool. Right. Well, John, it's just been so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience about the book or website, or do you want to refer people to book rants or anything like that? Well, if they go to my my webpage, which is www.johnjuliusreal.com, it's very well designed and it gives people access to all my different projects, book rants, and also my language learning videos on Instagram, on YouTube, and on Facebook. So I think and it also gives a description of the book and it also gives the different places to buy the book. So, I mean, that's probably the best way if people are curious about me to go to www.johnjuliusreal.com and they will find all the information that they want about me. It's been a pleasure speaking to you too, Jennifer. I also know that you wrote a travel book about going to the mountains of California and it's also a family memoir and I know it sort of goes back and forth between you arriving and sort of making sense of the, of how, you know, the landscape, how the landscape plays into family. And it's fascinating too. And, you know, you understand the challenges of making, how do you make a culture, whether that's landscape or traditions, how do you, how does that mesh with the family challenges? Mm -hmm. You know, you also touch on that in your book. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's we share that also. So it was a pleasure mm. to talk to you. I, I think that's why you were so insightful with your questions. <laughs> For the listeners, I'll include the link to John's website in the show notes. And I'll also include a link to that podcast with Mike Jacarino. Cause yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, it would be fun for listeners to listen to those two together. Compare then, the accents, right? Because yeah, he's also it, got right? a yeah, he's got yeah. a he's got a great accent also. Yeah. And then um, of course I'll include a link to the book too. So the book is My Half Orange, a story of love and language in Seville. And again, such a pleasure to have you come on the show, John. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here and thank you so much for inviting me because it, it really is a pleasure to be with someone who asks very insightful questions. So thank you, Jennifer. Thanks everybody for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music. <music>